Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Our text this morning is a familiar passage found in Paul's last letter that he wrote, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 14 and going through chapter 4 and verse 5, why we trust, study, and preach the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 14 and going through chapter 4 and verse 5. Paul writes, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Would you pray with me? Father, take now your inspired, infallible, inerrant word Take its truth and plant it deep within our minds and our hearts that we might love you and serve you more perfectly. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There is a professor not far from here at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, He refers to himself as a happy agnostic. He was a former evangelical at one time believed firmly in the full inspiration and truthfulness of the Bible. Without apology, he says that one of his goals today is to deconvert Christians, to remove them from their naivete and their shallow commitment and understanding of the Bible and the Christian faith. And I have to sadly acknowledge he is very, very effective in his evangelistic endeavors. He often begins a class with a challenge to his students, setting a trap that the overwhelming majority fall into. He will start the class with a question, something like this. How many of you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? And according to this professor, the vast majority of students always raise their hand. Then he will ask them this question. How many of you have read, and he will usually select a particularly popular novel, for example, uh, The Hunger Games by Susan Collins. 
And many, many hands will go up affirming that indeed they had read those series of books. He then will follow with a further question. How many of you have read the entire Bible? And this professor says virtually no one raises their hand. Then he springs the trap and captures the class. Now I can understand why you would read Collins's book. It's entertaining. But if you really believed God wrote a book, wouldn't you want to read it? And wouldn't you? My colleague and professor here, Tony Morita, points out, and I quote, this professor exposes a major problem. He highlights how those raised in a culturally Christian setting have some major inconsistencies with what they say and with what they do. We show what we believe about the Bible by how we use the Bible, not merely by what we say about the Bible. And when it comes to preaching, we show what we believe about the Bible by how we use the Bible in the pulpit. A high view of the Bible should lead to substantive biblical preaching. Paul moves from the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 to the command to preach it in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. It is a natural transition. If God wrote a book, then shouldn't you want to preach it? This morning, I want to remind us once again as to why it is that we are on good, solid ground in trusting the Bible. And therefore, why it is that we must study the Bible and why it is an absolute imperative that we preach the Bible. I have seven propositions. I'm going to move through them quickly so you listen in a hurry. Number one, we trust, study, and preach the Bible because it is what God uses to lead us to Jesus. You'll notice in this particular text that uh, Paul uses the phrase for you on a number of occasions. In fact, he actually began back up in chapter 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, verse 14. But as for you, continuing what you have learned, chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God, chapter 4, verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Augustine, the great theologian, said the Holy Scriptures are our letters from home. And it was in the home that the young man by the name of Timothy came to faith in Jesus Christ. You note what he says there in verse 14, but it's for you continue, present tense, you continue to continue in what you have, number one, learned, and number two, firmly believed. Why? Knowing with a settled conviction, knowing from whom you have learned it. Well, if you go back in this particular book, you discover in chapter one and verse six that young Timothy had had learned the gospel and had come to faith in Christ through the witness of his grandmother Lois and his mama Eunice. And I can readily uh, identify with that. I came to faith in Christ as a 10-year-old little boy, and in many ways, I came to Christ because of the influence of a grandfather and a mother. 
Uh, my granddaddy Galloway, a very simple farmer, was one of the most godly men that I've ever known. And every time I was, was out on the farm, he would talk to me about the things of the Lord and he would talk to me about the Lord Jesus Christ. He raised my mother. Uh, one of the most godly women that's ever walked the planet. And my mother nurtured me and loved me to Jesus by just reading the Bible and teaching me the Bible and sharing the gospel and putting it before me. And so Timothy had been taught the gospel and had learned about salvation through the witness of his mother and his grandmother. And of course, we know later, the apostle Paul also enters into the picture. And so you continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, a quick observation. There in verse 14, he uses, or verse 15, he uses the phrase, the sacred writings. He says of them in verse 16, they are the scriptures. So the scriptures, the sacred writings, talking about the same thing. Furthermore, he speaks of these sacred writings as being able to lead Timothy to faith in Jesus Christ. Question, what sacred writings, what scripture was he talking about? Answer, the Old Testament. You say, Danny, the Old Testament is in, uh, it contains the gospel. You better believe the Old Testament contains the gospel. The gospel is found from Genesis to Revelation. And so we make a terrible mistake when we sometimes allow ourselves to be completely confined to preaching the gospel in the New Testament when the fact of the matter is the gospel is there in the Old Testament as well. It was the Old Testament scriptures that are being utilized throughout the book of Acts as many thousands are coming to faith in Christ. And so we need to be reminded that all scripture is Christian scripture. We never treat the Bible like some type of Jewish rabbi because all of the Bible is pointing to and testifying to Jesus. D.A. Carson says it so very well. The entire Bible pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. And so we trust, we study, we preach the Bible because it's what God uses to lead us to Jesus. Not one of you in this room today came to faith in Jesus apart from the Bible. It was not something that you conjured up on your own. It did not come through a philosophy class or an ethics class or a class on worldview. And I'm in favor of all of those things. But you came to faith in Christ because you encountered the Bible. You were confronted with the truth of the word of God. Number two, we trust, study, and preach the Bible because it is divinely inspired by God. Verse 16 of 2 Timothy, may, uh, chapter 3, may be the most important verse in all the Bible when it comes to its inspiration. All Scripture is inspired by God. The ESV translates it, all Scripture is breathed out by God, translating a single Greek word, theonoustos. All Scripture, not most. All Scripture, not some, all Scripture is literally breathed out by God. And then he will note four things about it that is profitable. Inspired by God, the Old Testament pronounced the 
coming of Christ. The New Testament promised him, and we see the fruition of that in the Gospels and in Acts and then in the Pauline letters. Now, we need to recognize this morning that the idea of the Bible's inspiration is not an idea wherein everyone is in agreement. Uh, When you take, and if you already have taken systematic theology here, when you study the doctrine of revelation and you study the doctrine of special revelation and you study the doctrine of special revelation as it deals with the written word, you will be informed that there are a number of different ways in which people understand this idea of the Bible's inspiration. For example, uh, there's the liberal view that says the Bible is not inspired, but it is inspiring. Uh, It is simply a book like any other book that can move you and that can inspire you and can motivate you and then if if handled in a certain kind of a way can make you feel better about yourself. Uh, When I was in graduate school at the University of Texas at Arlington, uh, I had a professor that was a former Jesuit priest. Uh, This particular professor uh, actually shared without any reservation on one occasion that when he could quote, no longer peddle the product, he gave up the business. And so he left the priesthood, uh, got married, I would actually affirm that, and then he became a professor and then eventually a dean in a state university. He was a thoroughgoing follower of the New Testament heretic, Rudolf Bultmann. And I remember one evening, a Monday night class, I had a class with him called Faith and Reason in the Secular City. Uh, What an entertaining title. And in that particular class, one of my uh, uh, classmates, a young lady, raised her hand and she asked this professor if he believed the Bible was inspired. And uh, as he was smoking on his pipe, as he always did, in fact, he's very entertaining, he, he would get his pipe and he would smoke it while he was lecturing, but it would go out. And so he'd reach in and he'd get a match and he would strike it on something on his desk and he would light it again and then he'd throw the matches in the floor. And by the time the class ended, my goodness, there was somewhere between 30 and 40 matches lying there in the floor as he was puffing on his uh, pipe and, and, and sort of kind of teaching us. Well, anyway, she asked him, Do you believe the Bible is inspired? And he said, absolutely. I think it is the most inspiring book I've ever read. It's more inspiring than even Shakespeare. Now, needless to say, he did not mean by the word inspire or inspiring what I hope you mean and what I mean when I speak of the Bible's inspiration. Well, she recognized that there was an issue here, and so she went on to ask, well, can I ask you a theological question? He said, absolutely. She said, do you believe in the virgin birth? And his response was, are you speaking historically or theologically? She responded, well, I didn't know there was a difference. And he responded, there's a major difference. If you're asking me as a practicing Roman Catholic, he was still a church attender on some level. uh, If I believe that Jesus was virgin born theologically, the answer is yes. I believe it affirms his uh, uniqueness and the importance of, of who he was and what he accomplished in his lifetime. Now, if you're asking me if I believe in the virgin birth historically, the answer is blank no, and you can fill in the blank. Things like that don't happen. Well, there you have the liberal perspective on the Bible's inspiration. Then, of course, there is the neo-orthodox perspective made popular by men like uh, Karl Barth and Emil Bruner. Uh, The Bible is not the Word of God. 
But the Bible can become God's word to you in some type of subjective, uh, existential, experiential encounter. And then you have the neo-evangelicals, I hate even to use the word, but those who would profess to still believe the gospel, who would say the Bible is not the word of God, but the Bible contains the word of God. And some neo-evangelicals like the late Clark Pinnock would even argue for varying degrees of inspiration. In other words, some parts of the Bible are clearly more inspired than other parts of the Bible. And then, of course, there is the view that is affirmed by this school and by this faculty. And let me be crystal clear. We make no apologies in the fact that we believe this book is indeed divinely inspired and completely truthful. We make no apologies about that at all. We are gladly and and, and happily a confessional institution. And if you read our confessions of faith, like the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 or the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, you will know that apart from any uh, reservation, apart from any hesitation, we affirm this book is indeed the very word of God. In fact, I've often said when I teach here, the best way to describe the Bible is simply this, the Bible is the word of God written in the words of men. It is the word of God written in the words of men. It is a 100% divine book. It is a 100% human book. But because it is a divine book, you can trust every single word to be completely and utterly truthful. You say, why do you believe the Bible is completely true, Danny? Well, there are a lot of reasons I believe the Bible is completely true. But let me just give you a couple. Number one, Jesus believed the Bible was completely true and trustworthy. Now, that's good enough for me right there. I don't need to go anywhere else. If Jesus says the Bible is the word of God, I believe the Bible is the word of God. He said this in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. He said this in John 10, 35. He said it in John 17, 17. Jesus believed the Bible was the inspired word of God. As we're reading right now, Paul believed the Bible was the inspired word of God. And go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, and you will discover that Peter believed the Bible was the inspired word of God. Now, let me make something very clear for all of us this morning. And you need not ever forget this. If you get to a point in your life where you begin to doubt or even deny that the Bible is the completely true, trustworthy, infallible, and inerrant word of God, a couple of things have taken place in your life, whether you realize it or not. Number one, you are saying that Jesus was wrong. You're saying that when it comes to the issue of the Bible's inspiration, Jesus was wrong. Secondly, at least in this particular instance, you are also saying, I am smarter than Jesus. And I would submit to you that those are two very serious uh, roads that you do not want to walk down. At the dead end is a dead end. There's no hope. There's no gospel. There's nothing left. When I uh, was called to go to Southern Seminary in 1996. Southern Seminary was going through a radical theological transformation very similar to what Southeastern Seminary had gone through previously. They were just lagging behind a couple of years. And so when I went there to work alongside of my friend Al Moeller, uh, we were in the midst of a significant transition. 
Well, one of the things I wanted to do as the vice president and dean of the School of Theology was to be a a good dean, uh, to be a good vice president, to love the faculty as best as I could, regardless of where they were coming from theologically. And so I did my best to meet privately with every one of them. And in a number of cases, uh, I took them out for, for a meal, either lunch or dinner. Not a big breakfast person, uh, two Diet Cokes and a big glass of iced tea will suffice just fine. Thank you very much. So I don't need that breakfast stuff. I just move right on. And yes, I am loaded with caffeine, as you can already tell. So anyway, I went out with a particular New Testament professor, very kind man, but also known for his very radical liberal views. And so as we sat down to have lunch, he looked at me and he said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure, you can ask anything you want. He said, um, why do you think the way you think? And why do you believe the way you believe? I mean, you've got a PhD. He he then caught himself and he said, "I, I am so sorry. That sounds very condescending. I don't mean it that way. I just don't understand how well educated people can believe what you believe. And I said to him, well, I'm not offended by your, uh, your question at all. And I said, I'm happy to answer it. I just don't know that you'll be very happy with my answer. I said, there are two reasons why I think the way I think, why I believe the Bible is God's infallible and inerrant word. I said, the first reason is this. When I was 10 years old, I got saved. When I was 10 years old, I was converted. I was born again. I was regenerated. And it has, I've never gotten over it. I don't think you can. And it has shaped the way I've looked at life ever since. I said, but secondly, when I was about uh, 19 years old, God really got a hold of my life. I had, had, to my shame, I did not walk with the Lord as a teenager. I, I really didn't. But when I was 18, 19, God really got a hold of me, and I really fell in love all over again with Jesus. And so as a result of that, I wanted to think like Jesus thinks about everything. I wanted to see with his eyes and think with his mind to the best of my ability. And I shared with this professor that as I got into the Bible, I discovered Jesus said, not a letter or part of a letter will pass away until all of it comes to fulfillment. Jesus said in John 10, 35, the scriptures cannot be broken. Jesus said in John 17, 17, in his high priestly prayer, speaking to his father, thy word is truth. And then I said to this man, I said, uh, didn't you go to Germany and study with Bultmann? And he kind of brightened up and said, well, yes, I did. I said, well, you know, Bultmann said Jesus had the same view of the Bible as any first century Jew. Bultmann said that Jesus believed the Bible was the inspired word of God, and he did. I said, you know, the only difference between Bultmann and me is I think Jesus was right, and he thinks Jesus was wrong. And then I said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then he's God, and he's right about everything. And that's why I believe the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. And this very brilliant PhD looked at me and said, and I quote, I have never thought about it like that before. That does make a lot of sense. And we had lunch. Bottom line, I believe the Bible is the word of God because Jesus said it is the divinely inspired word. Number three, we trust, study, and preach the Bible because God uses it to 
mature us. Look at verse 16 and verse 17. All scriptures breathed out by God, and therefore it is profitable for four things. Number one, for teaching. Number two, for reproof. Number three, for correction. And number four, training in righteousness that the man of God, the person of God, the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Charles Spurgeon said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. I like that. And the Bible is profitable because it is inspired. And because it is inspired, it is profitable. The NIV says useful for four things. I just note them very quickly. First of all, it is profitable for teaching what to believe, what is right. Secondly, it is profitable for reproof, what not to believe, what is not right. Number three, it is profitable for correction, how not to live and how to get right. And then finally, it is profitable for training in righteousness, that is how to live and how to stay right. So to reiterate, what is right, what is not right, how to get right and how to stay right. The Bible accomplishes all of that in your life because it is inspired by God. Let me tell you something. It is this book that will sustain you in ministry. It is this book that will sustain you on the mission field. It is this book that will sustain you when times are tough, things are not going well, when you're thinking about throwing in the towel, walking away, dropping out of the race. It is this book that will sustain you to stay with the stuff. It is this book that indeed can get you to the finish line. It is profitable. And God is using it to mature you more and more to be conformed to the image of his son. Number four, we trust, study, and preach the Bible because it will prepare us for the judgment. Look at chapter four and verse one. I charge you, he places Timothy under a solemn oath. I charge you, first of all, in the presence of God, that is God the Father, and of Christ Jesus, that is God the Son, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. What you are believing, trusting in when you stand before God and prepare for eternity really matters. What you are trusting in, believing in, counting on when you stand before God is very, very important. And so Paul places a very weighty charge upon Timothy that he recognized in the midst of the Bible, in the midst of preaching the Bible and teaching the Bible and being faithful to the Bible, there is a great weight upon us once more. If God in particular has called you to be a pastor, and God has called you to preach the word, and you come to some point or time in your life when you no longer believe that this is the word of God, I beg you in Jesus' name, leave the ministry. Walk away, go do something else. You're not fit for the ministry. You're not qualified for the ministry. You're indeed disqualified if you doubt this book is indeed the Word of God. You want to see the fallout of what happens when you have in the pulpit and in the ministry those who don't believe the Word? Look at America today. Look at England today. Look at Western Europe today. Dead, bankrupt spiritually. Why? Because they no longer trust or believe in this book. I know there's somewhat of a pragmatic argument there, but it's not surprising to me that the Bible actually does work 
It actually does produce what it says it will, and the negligence and neglect of it produces something altogether different, death and destruction. No, Warren Wiersbe is right. It would do us all good to occasionally, I would add the word regularly, it would do us all good to occasionally reflect on the fact that one day we will face God and our work will be judged. People sometimes ask me, why are you so committed to expository preaching? Because I am scared to stand before God. And I know that God will hold me accountable for every sermon and every message I have ever preached. And how dare I put anything before a needy people, anything other than the one trustworthy, reliable source in all of the world, that being the word of God. Number five, we trust, we study and preach the Bible because it will convict us and encourage us. Beginning with verse two and going all the way down through verse five, Paul peppers the text with no less than nine imperatives. You see one, two, three, four, five of them in verse two alone. In light of the fact that the Bible will lead you to salvation. In light of the fact that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God. In light of the fact that it is the Bible that brings you to maturity. In light of the fact that the Bible is the only firm foundation upon which you can stand when you stand before God at the judgment. It is just logical and makes sense to follow up with verse 2. Preach the word. How do we preach the word, Paul? Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove rebuke and exhort and do all of this with complete patience and teaching. I am an advocate of preaching the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, phrase by phrase, and word by word. I'm an advocate of preaching the little stories in light of the big story, the drama of Christ. And I like what uh, my uh, friend Tony Morita again says, I borrow from him at this point. He says, we preach the word only and always. We're to be ready in season and out of season, which means when you want to and when you don't want to, when it is convenient and when it is inconvenient, when it is popular and when it is unpopular. And then he says, we reprove, why? Because wayward sheep need to be reproved. We rebuke, why? Because rebellious sheep need to be rebuked. And we exhort, why? Because fearful, hurting sheep need to be encouraged. And so it is the Bible that will both convict us on the one hand, but also encourage us on the other. Number six, we trust, study, and preach the Bible because it provides sound teaching to live by. Look at what he says there in verse three. Four, the time is coming. And let me point out that time comes again and again and again in varying contexts. I recognize that there's an eschatological impulse to what we are reading here, but at the same time, we should recognize whether Jesus comes tomorrow or a thousand years from now, the time comes again and again and again when people will turn away from what is true. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. It could be translated healthy doctrine. They will not receive it. They will not endure it. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions 
and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is us today in America. This is us today in Western culture. Those that remain to hear the Bible want preachers and teachers who make them feel better about themselves. They don't want teachers and preachers who will tell them the truth and step on their toes and bring them under conviction. Uh, We live in a day when people really would prefer a lie rather than the truth. You doubt this, just look how our culture handles the abortion issue. We would rather believe a lie about an organization, for example, like Planned Parenthood than we would to deal with the truth. No, we live in a day when people want a false and untrue big story, not the true story of the whole world, which is found only in the Bible. Soren Kierkegaard said it well. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obligated to act accordingly. And yes, we study and we trust and we preach the Bible because it and it alone provides sound teaching to live by. Number seven, we trust, study, and preach the Bible because it will enable us to fulfill the ministry that God has given us. In verse five, Paul concludes with four rapid-fire imperatives for his young son in the ministry, as for you. Number one, always be sober-minded. Number two, endure suffering. Number three, do the work of an evangelist. And number four, fulfill your ministry. Just a quick comment about each one. Be sober-minded. The idea is be balanced. Uh, Keep your cool and your presence of mind. Again, I'm going to quote my colleague, Tony Morita. Do not freak out. Do not freak out. Keep a clear head. I would add, don't be a bobblehead. We don't need that stuff in the ministry. By the way, if any of you ever create a bobblehead for me, I'm going to hunt you down. (laughs) They will never find your body, I promise you. That's being sober-minded. Number two, (laughs) endure suffering. He's already told us in chapter 3 and verse 12 that all who live godly in Christ Jesus can expect suffering. It is our calling to suffer because we follow the suffering servant. Be evangelistic. It's not a popular word today, but that's why I'm going to continue to use it to make my point. Be a soul winner. Be a soul winner. Be someone who is out there in search of lost souls. Be an evangelist. Be an evangelist, yes, in the pulpit, but you be an evangelist in everyday life as well. Finally, fulfill your ministry. Finish well. Complete your ministry. Be faithful to the end. Several years ago, I met uh, a good friend uh, who is an atheist. Uh, He had wanted to study evangelicals from the inside out and write a book about us. And he actually wrote a very fair book. In fact, it was so fair, the publishing house nearly rejected the manuscript, not because of its quality, but because of his conclusions. Uh, The book is entitled Chapter and Verse, A Skeptic Revisits Christianity. And uh, this man by the name of Mike Bryant wrote that book. 
He spent six months at an evangelical college going to classes just like you all. Uh, he went on a mission trip. He went to the Southern Baptist Convention, which I tried to talk him out of doing. And we also took him to Israel. And I'll never forget when he came out of the empty tomb, I yelled at him. I told you it was empty. And he just grinned at me and we went on the rest of the trip. Well, shortly before he returned home, he did not live where we lived. He lived in New York at the time. He came over to our house to have dinner. He loved Charlotte, loved my sons who were small then. And after we'd had dinner and uh, the boys went outside to play and Charlotte was doing some other things, I looked at him and I said, you know, Mike, I just want to ha ask you one question. After spending all this time with us evangelicals in our little evangelical bubble, what's the bottom line? What's the bottom line? And he said, that's easy, Danny. The bottom line is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I agreed with him. I said, well, I, I think you're exactly correct. But I, I'm curious, why do you think uh, the bottom line is the resurrection? He said, well, it's, it's very easy. He said, Danny, if the resurrection is true, then a number of things naturally follow. And by the way, this guy is a graduate of Columbia University, so he's no intellectual lightweight. He said, if Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, then number one, there is a God. Number two, Jesus is that God. Number three, the Bible is true because he said it was true. And that means, number four, that heaven and hell are real. And number five, he makes all the difference. And I said, um, that's pretty good theology. And he playfully said, I had a good teacher. So then I said, well, if the resurrection's the bottom line, then help me out. Obviously, I am delusional. I am a backwards, naive, crazy-eyed fundamentalist that's a danger to society. And he started laughing. He said, I don't believe all that. I said, no, but you think I'm crazy. And he said, well, yeah, I do believe that. I said, fine, help me out. What happened on the first Easter morning? And he looked at me and he said, well, you know, that's a really good question. And I don't know. And I said, what do you mean you don't know? He said, look, I took your class in systematic theology in New Testament. I heard Gary Habermas come in and lecture for three days on the resurrection. I read a number of the books you challenged me to read. And, and I confess, there's a lot of evidence that on that first Easter morning, the tomb was empty. He said, but Danny, I'm an, I'm an atheist, an agnostic at best from your perspective. I don't even believe there's a God. And so I guess I'll just have to say, I'll suspend my judgment for now. I'm not a deeply emotional person, at least I wasn't back then. But tears began to run down my face. And I said, you know, Mike, I would hate to think that you will die and go to hell on suspended judgment. And then I said to him, and I really believe this is true for most people, I really do. The problem is not up here in your head. The problem is right here in your heart. Your head tells you the tomb was empty, but your heart doesn't want to yield to the evidence and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And he looked at me and he said, well, you know what, Danny? You might be right. And then he made a very strange statement for an atheist. 
he said, don't stop praying for me. And I haven't. To this date, I have no information that he has become a Christian, but I have not stopped praying for him. I want to close by just noting one more time, his theology, to quote the Brits, is spot on. If Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, there is a God. Jesus is that God. And the Bible is true because he said so. That is why we trust it. That is why we study it. And that is why we faithfully preach it till he comes again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have revealed yourself so clearly in both your living word and your written word. I thank you that the evidence is overwhelming that the Lord Jesus Christ, the man from Nazareth, is indeed God in the flesh and that he is Lord, Master, King of all things. And I thank you that you have also given us your written word. And just as the, the living word, the Lord Jesus, is sinless, so your written word is without error. We can trust it day by day, and we can trust it at the judgment. And therefore, to have such a precious treasure, we cannot keep it to ourselves, but we must share it. And because we have such a precious treasure, we must treat it as what it is, very precious and a treasure. May we then this day stand with great confidence upon your word, knowing that it is through the Bible that we come to salvation in King Jesus. We make all this our prayer in his strong and saving name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.